I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Welcome to the Appendix N Book Club. I'm Jeff, and with me is Hoy, riding atop his psychic moose. It's the only way to see the world. <laughs> and this is episode 14, Sterling E. Lanier's Hyros Journey from 1973. Very excited this week. Yes. As always. And in my hand, I have the 1974 Bantam paperback edition that has this very cool cover. It's kind of this big kind of freaky dinosaur monster thing amidst these ruins in a jungle. And then there are two dudes kind of on a hill wearing pants and shirts yeah, and they're cool. kind of climbing some vines right. or something. Pants, shirts, or is it jump, jumpsuits? It would be very 70s if it was jumpsuits. Maybe. Yeah. I don't think they are jumpsuits, though. Jumpsuits, though, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, the, the image doesn't really seem to have a lot of bearing from the text. And the artist is also a bit of a mystery. Mm-hmm. It is very um, moody, though. I love that orange sky there and everything. Yeah. And I, we weren't able to find online who this artist was. There's no signature. Uh, it's not credited anywhere. Right. So if any of you know, do let us know. Yes. Okay. And uh, Hoy, tell us about your edition. I have the 1983 Del Rey copy with a Daryl K. Sweet cover, uh, which is actually quite accurate. It's the first meeting of Hyro and Gorm, the intelligent bear, telepathic bear. Um, it is, however, not particularly uh, energetic, I would say, of cover. And that's maybe a little bit typical of Daryl Sweet. He's, he's yeah, that's because that, he's the one who did your, your, your cover for uh, the Blue Star, too, right? The Blue Star. And uh, later on, when we do Less Darkness Fall, he did that cover. He's okay. most well known for maybe doing, for more recently, uh, the Robert Jordan uh, fantasy yes. covers. Okay. Um, but so, yes, his, his, his covers are always very accurate to the text, which is nice. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I think he clearly has uh, he has reads a lot of these and or works with very good art, art directors. But, again, they're not as dynamic or moody um, covers. But, anyway, it's a, it's a nice cover. Uh, how about the, the uh, cover copy on yours? Sure. On the back of my book it says, That the death may never come again, per Hiro Destine, priest, telepath, trained killer. He rode out on a perilous quest into a world at the end of time, inhabited by shadowy forces, sudden terrors, violent death, by weird mutated beasts men had no name for, by the Lemutes, animals with intelligence, with human intelligence, manipulated by the anti-life dark brotherhood. His mission? To discover the lost secret of the ancients in time to save humanity from destruction. His one weapon? The human mind. The author is a master. He has created a unique milieu with loving care, Puts his hero, Hyro, through his paces with mounting suspense, says Publishers Weekly. That's pretty cool. It sounds almost like a Jack Kirby comic, in a sense. Sure. Yeah. Uh, mine is similar, but not quite. The uh, publisher's blurb is the same. But anyway, the actual uh, back cover copy is, A Mission of Terror. Per Hyro Destine was a priest, a telepath, and a highly trained killer. Together with his great riding moose and the young bear who was his friend, he was on a mission that seemed beyond even his extraordinary powers. For this was 5,000 years after the Holocaust, known as the Death, and the world was greatly changed. Now the bro- evil brotherhood of the unclean was waging all-out war against the few remnants of normal humanity, determined to wipe out all traces of its emerging civilization. Hyros' task was to locate and bring back a lost secret of the ancients, which might save the humans who were ruled by the Abbeys. 
but his path lay through the very heart of the unknown territory ruled by the unclean and their hordes of mutated, intelligent, and savage beast followers. And the unclean were waiting for him. Ah. Ah. All right. So before we go into the library, we're going to quickly go over our Hygaxian word of the day. Hit us. Opalescent. Opalescent. And opalescent is a word that is featured, uh, that I came across twice in the text. The first time, on page 66, the great opalescent eyes were set 10 feet apart on the blunt, slimy head. That's kind of creepy. And then, once again, on page 155, it's used in a very different way. Above a board, covered with lights and buttons, hung a clear glass tube filled with some opalescent fluid suspended by wire at both ends. And what does opalescent mean? It means showing varying colors as an opal does. There you go. Nice. Okay, so uh, what about this book, Jeff? What about it? So um, I loved this book so much. I had so much fun reading this. Um, On its surface, if you were to say, Jeff, what is this book about? And I say, well, it's about a Native American telepathic priest in uh, a post-apocalyptic Canada who rides a psychic moose, becomes friends with a bear, um, meets a, um, a beautiful woman, and then uh, uh, a monk, and then they go and they like beat up a bunch of mutants and try to find an old computer. Uh, oh, and battle like a, a fungus house. It sounds utterly ridiculous. Ludicrous. Ludicrous. Totally ludicrous. But the experience of reading the book is so different. It's actually really compelling, well-written, epic fantasy that never feels silly in the moment. At least that was my experience of it. Would you agree with that? I would largely agree. It's not a perfect book, but it may be one of the books that I've had the most fun reading so far in this our podcast series. Um, yeah, it's it's um, it takes itself seriously without being self-serious, which mm-hmm. is I think pretty important. Agree. Uh, I think the characterization is very distinct, even of like the sort of borderline intelligent creatures like the the, the morse mm-hmm. which is the moose horse um named uh clute is that right clutes 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 k l u no k l o o t yeah k l o o t z right thank you yes. yes and then uh you can use your mouth better than i can yeah. <laughs> right. well i've got those i've got those flexible lips like the morse <laughs> um uh yeah no it's really interesting and you have uh, a character he's he's um um, a met, so he's he's very proud of being this. Um, as our uh, one of our fellow members of our reading group pointed out, he's very proud of being this pure met, which actually is the word for metis, which means mixed. So he's actually mixed Native American and whatever uh, you know uh, foreign influence that came to Canada, you know, prior to this apocalypse. So, but it is it's interesting. They actually do talk about race. There are characters with distinct distinct races. Mm-hmm. Um, later on, he meets the heroine who is um, uh, black. Um, there are the various uh, other groups that they meet along the way, some of them who are clearly sort of not direct analogs, but you can see are descents, descendants of current-day ethnic groups yep. as, they, as they go along. Um, and certainly while we're going through our Appendix N stories, the vast majority of our protagonists are white men, mm-hmm. and occasionally we've got a white woman who tags along. Wait, I don't think we've yet encountered... Oh, I guess Lalette, Lalette actually was kind of during half the half the novel the main character mm-hmm, right. i think so far she's our only the only time we've had a female kind of taking a starring role but for the most part it's like it seems like it's 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 mostly uh mostly white men an occasional white woman so to also have a an appendix end novel 
where your protagonist is a mixed race Native American man and the love interest is a gorgeous black woman. Um, it's just kind of cool and fun and exciting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, it, feels, um, it feels like it could not have been written before its time, which was 1973, but it doesn't feel like a 70s book as such. Although, you know, there's certainly the concerns that people had in those days of, you know, uh, which I guess people still have of uh, potential environmental catastrophe. You know, this is obviously post-apocalyptic story, so nuclear war. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, various aspects of um, the you know sort of environmental uh, awareness in the story, but you know, not really hitting your head over it. Uh, yeah, and there's no one reason why the world kind of fell fell apart. You know, it was a common like they talk about how like it was pollution, it was all of the wars we were having, it was overpopulation, mm-hmm. it was synthetic diseases we were creating. It was just everything that everything that we worry about now is exactly what caused the destruction of humankind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is worth pointing out, and I think we've already said this, but I mean we really should hit this on the head that he is also basically a Catholic priest. Yeah, uh, you know, and this is a, a strong. He's a strongly religious character, but I don't think that anybody who is, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, secular humanist, is going to have any problem reading this book and, and getting into it anyway. And Catholicism so, has changed in the past. Um, what is the, I, five thousand? Yeah, years. the year is seven thousand four hundred and twenty-six. Right. So yes, right. Catholicism has changed quite a bit in those right. five thousand years. Right. Although I guess maybe it's also sort of meant to call back to. The period of the abbeys and the monasteries during the Dark Ages in Europe, too, because mm-hmm. you know these are sort of these little clusters of bright light or civilization in this post-apocalyptic world, and they gather new knowledge, and they also send people out like Hiro to get to, you know, learn what's going on in the world yeah. and, and learn, you know, what technology is being found again and mm-hmm. is it being used for good or for evil. Um, so. Um, but priests don't have to be celibate. In fact, like right. Hiro, I forget if they say it explicitly or not, but my impression at least was that Hiro was quite a woman's man for a while while he was up there, and that wasn't a problem with the church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody, no, no woman could quite pin him down. So when he does meet Lucere and they decide to get married at some point, uh, I guess that actually does say something about their connection. Mm-hmm. Although also, you know, he is 36 and she's 17. So although it is really exciting to see you know, some representations that we uh, of, of, of other people who we don't normally see in the fiction, there still are problematic elements. You know, I think a 36-year-old marrying a 17-year-old, it's while, while that's legal in a lot of states, like it's still like for many of us rings a little creepy. You know, I'm 37 and yeah. I can't imagine getting together with a 17-year-old right now. Like yeah. it, it just kind of feels like a child to me. Um, yeah, I suppose it might not have seemed as much. I mean, there was definitely precedent, especially in situations where... Uh, you know, or war-torn or the number of men is more scarce. You know, there's sure. a lot of situations where, you know, uh, men would be marrying much younger women. You know, we, we hear about that a lot in the Old West. And so, and this is sort of meant to sort of evoke that kind of feeling of yeah. a, a depopulated world. And I get that. And, and also Lucere herself, she isn't a great female character, but she's also not a terrible female character. She's kind of somewhere kind of in the middle of the spectrum that we've seen. Well, she definitely has personality. And it is made clear that she is young and and, and, and Quite brave, but at, at points a little bit immature also. Yeah. yeah, And she's very smart and very capable, yeah. you know, because the, the thing about the, the psychic powers in this universe is my, 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 my understanding and impression from reading this is really anybody can tap into this. And whether or not that is true of humans in all of history and they're just discovering it or whether this is something that has happened in the post-devastation 
evolution of humankind, that's not really discussed because it doesn't matter. Right. Uh, but at this, at least by by the year seventy four twenty six, any human being is capable of developing these psychic powers. And she grew up in a part of the part of the world where the only people who had these powers were the unclean, these 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 mutants who are running around causing massive destruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when she meets him and discovers that she can also use these powers herself and he starts to teach her, she learns them surprisingly fast. Right. And it is made a point that she actually is from a civilization, basically a civilization of black people in what's formerly Delaware and the East Coast of the United States and there's a couple of kingdoms there. So they've developed a civilization after the apocalypse. It has its problems because it's too feudal and too sort of um, hierarchical. Um, Hyra's society is not perfect either, but um, it seems to be the best hope for you know progress going forward. And one of the things that they discuss is how the unclean actually go in and they plant people in these different societies for the sole purpose of sowing chaos. Right. And, and it's interesting because ultimately we learn that the unclean are sort of the descendants of the scientists. And, and you would think of the people who were super rational. Um, but in many ways they seem less rational than Hiro or Luchar mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, I mean, they're very control-oriented but less rational, it seems to me. Yeah. Um, and this is one of those stories like The Hobbit or like The Maker of Universes where it is about a, a, a group of characters going from point A to point B. And one of the things that I often bring up is how in those kinds of stories, or, or really kind of in these stories in general, whether or not the various encounters they have along the way feel like they really fit into the storyline and add to it. And in this particular book, I feel like it really does. Like every single moment of action really moves the story forward and uh, keeps us progressing. And the pacing is really, I think, very solid here. Like it's one of the longest, if not the longest, Appendix M book I've read so far, clocking it at almost 400 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, it really just kind of rolled right along. Right. My copy is 318, but the, the type is particularly small on my copy. So. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Mine's 372. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was my, my aged ocular you know, ocular apparatus was definitely not working too well on this one, but nonetheless, <laughs> um, I liked that um, uh, Hyro, uh, I mean, before we get to the total D&D ability, but he was, he's, people always talk about, does the cleric really exist anywhere in the appendix and fiction or any of the sort of uh, precursors to D&D? And you could clearly say that Hyro could be modeled as a cleric or alternatively as a ranger or both. So we can definitively say the answer to the question, does the cleric exist in Appendix N? The definitive answer is maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Well, I feel like Cairo is, I mean, if we, if we consider that he, um, you know, he, ha- he doesn't necessarily have healing powers, but he's medically trained. He's, uh-huh. a, a, good, he's a good fighter. Sure. Um, he has. But he's not praying to gods for spells. Which is like the core of what a cleric is. I suppose. Uh, but he is using the runes to draw on knowledge that's beyond him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does have a very, I mean, he does have an idea of divinity and, and spirituality, right? That's absolutely true. You know, because a lot of times um, clerics in D&D are, are sort of theoretically doing that, but it's just sort of like, here's the thing that we do, and it's just like we checked off this, this box off and we get mm-hmm. this thing back. And, and it's clearly part of him. He, he wears it lightly, but mm-hmm. it's part of him. Um, so again, it's an interesting treatment of um, religion that is um, both recognizable but has moved on from what we might think about from today, right? Yeah, and I mean, not to harp on this too much, but I would say that 
if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons and you're playing a warrior or a thief or an elf or a dwarf or something, I imagine you could have a character who's just as religious as Hiro is and have that work as just kind of a part of your character's backstory and the way that you roleplay that character. I'm not so sure that Hiro's religion or his faith in his god actually fueled any of his powers, though. No, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Oh, um, so in that sense, if you're talking about purely mechanically, that does that does that make him a cleric? No, but I think in the role that he plays mm. of being a warrior priest, yeah. right, the cleric is not just a the cleric in D and D is not just a, a your parish priest, right? He's that's true. That's a that is a very good point. This is a great model of the priest who is out there fighting and adventuring. Right. That's a good point. I wasn't looking at it that way. So now I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, this brings up the big, uh, as, as you mentioned, the big uh, bugaboo of D&D, which is psionics. Uh, yes. <laughs> so he, develops, he, or he has powers from the very beginning, but there's no other way to say it other than he basically levels up through the course of this novel and gains more and more powers. He does. And also, it's, it's always been really kind of funny and absurd to me that in most versions of D&D, the way you get more powerful is by killing stuff. Right. You go out there, you kill some things, and you learn some new spells. You go out there and you kill some things, and you get better at swinging your sword, or you kill some things, and now you're better at hiding in shadows and resisting poisons. Uh, that's just how you get better in, 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 in Dungeons and & Dragons and similar role-playing games. And that does not seem to fit the fiction of most of the stuff I've read, but in Hyro's journey, that's a hundred percent what's happening. Right. After, after he, he keeps, and he even explicitly says in the text, like that he is getting better because of all of these battles he's in. Right, these challenges that are sort of pushing him to the limits, and then suddenly. He... Sure, and in this specific context, it makes sense because his it's his psionic abilities that are getting stronger and stronger, and it's because he's relying heavily on his. Uh, and also, for the record, they don't use the word psionics in this in this in this novel. They talk about like telepathy and his mental powers. They don't call it psionics, but mm-hmm. we, but since that's the term that we use in d and I'm going to continue using mm-hmm. it. But uh, because he's relying so heavily on his psionic abilities to get through these encounters, it is uh, he's learning new ways to do it, and it's challenging him to find new and creative ways to use his psionics. Right. I think this is definitely a good model of, I mean, a character developing in fiction, but how you could think about that. In role plays, not just that he gets more powerful, he becomes he becomes more powerful by, as you say, learning creative ways to approach situations. Mm-hmm. It's not it's, it's and overcoming the situation. It's not necessarily by vanquishing or, yes. or, or sheer violence, but it is always by peril and challenge mm-hmm. that he he increases in his powers. And, you know, to his credit, it's not. I mean, if we're, a lot of us, you know, when we were more immature, we was like, oh, we have more power, so now I can go and kill more stuff and take more stuff, and that's not what he's about. He's he's yeah. always on his mission which is he's been sent out to you know, find this source of knowledge for the abbeys. And I think also, as you mentioned before, what's great is do the encounters, do the various scenes fit into the overall, do they propel the narrative forward? Um, and not only that, every single character he meets is interesting, and if not perfectly drawn, they're still distinct in their own right. Like, you know, Captain Gimp is terrific. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the and various, Brother Aldo is right. great. And the various, even the various malicious mutants are distinctly malicious in their own ways, right? You know. Yeah, and um, you know, at our in-person real-life book club, um, we were chatting with somebody who was saying that the the villains felt kind of two-dimensional. And while I do agree that they didn't seem to have a whole lot going on in terms of like individual personalities, I felt like Sterling E. Lanier did a really nice job 
of making it feel like there was a lot more going on with them that we just didn't have access to. You know, their 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 motives and their desires are pretty alien to us. And I feel like Sterling E. Lanyard does a really nice job of kind of exploring and finding all that is alien in, in the novel. Because like when he first meets Gorm and is chatting with the bear, you know, bears and humans see the world and think in very different ways. So although they can communicate telepathically, it takes them a while to kind of find a stride and find a way in which they can really kind of understand each other because they see the world very differently. And then later, we, we discovered that even plants have an ability to communicate telepathically, but they do so in a way that's quite difficult for humans to kind of key in on. Mm-hmm. And we encountered that again later when we end up meeting, um, um, oh, I'm forgetting the names of the, 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 the plant women. Right, um, who could sort of be sort of models for elves. The Villary. Yeah. Yeah, the Villary. Yes, exactly. They could totally be kind of dryads or wood elves right. or something. As a matter of fact, I think in RuneQuest, the elves are actually supposed to be descended from plants, and that was a distinguishing feature from RuneQuest versus, you know, the D&D sort of Tolkien-type elf. Oh, so, really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so definitely they have their own personality, and every once in a while you get the telepathic sort of impressions. He's able to key in, as you say, on, like, what clutes his Morse and Gorm, the, the bear, perceiving, and you can see that Gorm is perceiving things through bear senses, so he has very poor eyesight, but he's smelling all these things mm-hmm. and, and, and interacting with the world in that way. And, you know, Klutz is, you know, a herbivore, so he's always constantly looking for, you know, food to munch on while things are going on, you yep, know, yep. And, and, you know, looking for to wallow in, you know, some, you know, a river just to get the fleas off, so to speak. And Gorm is always very um, confused by all of the time that Hyro spends praying and when Hyro and Lucere begin to fall in love with each other and start getting quite amorous in their talks and in their actions, um, Gorm is also just kind of like, a, huh, your guys' mating, mating habits for your species are quite strange. Right. <laughs> um, it seems like we have other things to worry about right now other than whether or not you guys want to make smoochy faces. Right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, in many ways, Gorm is probably my uh, favorite character, although they're all great. But Brother Aldo, who um, he encounters along the way, is sort of uh, a priest who's dedicated to the balance of uh, preserving all life, right? So not just mm-hmm. human life. So uh, so he could definitely be the model for a druid-type character. I mean, he's clearly good, but I guess if you were human, you might think he was neutral because he's not favoring humanity over any other form of life. So he's a good model for the druid later on. Yeah, and he really does seem to be kind of focused on the balance of things. Mm-hmm. You know, even if something is trying to kill you and destroy you, uh, or it's trying to... Or maybe, I guess actually he does kill things that yeah. are trying to specifically trying to kill him. But things that are destructive and are trying to destroy the world around them, that doesn't necessarily mean that you just slaughter them. Right. So that may be an interesting way because a lot of times people play neutral just meaning as like just sort of going whichever way the rest of the party is going or just doing whatever you feel like. And, and here's a way it's like, no, this is what neutrality means. It means that, you know... I'm a guardian of the balance. A guardian of some kind of balance, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. If we're getting, again, if we're thinking of alignment in cosmic terms as opposed to sort of more behavioral terms. Um, and one other thing I would like to acknowledge with this story is, you know, we talked about in Jack of Shadows how the the pink mossy rock was one of the creepiest and strangest and most alien enemies we had encountered in our reading so far. I would like to go ahead and give the pink, fuzzy, moldy rock a companion and say that the house Mm -hmm. is also one of the strangest, freakiest villains we've encountered so far. 
Um, do you want to tell people who have read this, who who, ha- who haven't read this, w- about the house? The house is basically a, a sentient fungus network, if you will, for you know, it's 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 the central brain of basically a fungus network that spreads out over miles and miles and miles and can perceive and, and it's trying to always kind of grow and it has it can sprout different parts that can actually move mm-hmm. and it's just literally the size of a house and it's like sort of this weird pulse and kind of the shape of a house right. weirdly like it's this weird kind of solid box thing right. with right angles even right. though it's right. it's, it's very much organic right. and uh, although i wonder what maybe that is it trying to sort of emulate other life so to speak mm. right or the the creations of other life right so it, it's in this underground situation that's basically a, a pre-war bomb bunker yeah and so maybe it's trying to emulate that and then it has you know it, it basically can sort of create you know sort of mushroom soldiers for lack of a better word yeah. right but they're not humanoid they're just like these towering mushrooms and funguses yeah these like columns right of- um, and another power it has, which and it's actually funny that I'm I'm saying that it can be the companion of the fuzzy rock because they also have something in common, which is that their primary power is that they just kind of take over your brain and make you. I guess in the case of the house, it makes you totally stop and make you not be able to move, so that you know, the, as you call them, like the mushroom soldiers, mm-hmm. uh, which makes them sound far more. Um, accessible and um, human-like than they truly are. Like right. that's, that's no, this is definitely really alien. This very, is. very alien. Yeah. Um, and the the kind of pink fuzzy rock, which also doesn't sound very scary, its power is to kind of take over your mind and have you walk to it. Right. But they do kind of have these, like, I'm going to dominate your brain and use that to eat you mm-hmm. kind of powers. And and it's clearly, uh, the rock uh, in Jack of Shadows is, is sort of purely predatory, whereas the house is, it's once you get past the alienness, it does have the fundamental motivations of all life which is to expand and reproduce and, and survive right and even further than that it seems to have a philosophy mm-hmm. because at a certain point when Hiro is kind of taken by it he's kind of battling with this feeling because he suddenly like understands the philosophy of the house and the fungus and basically they the the house and the fungus they believe that um, everything around, like everything else in the world needs to kind of be taken over and they all, like the whole world needs to become this like fungal network. And for a while, like Hiro is actually, like his brain is taken over just enough by it that he's buying into it. He's like, yeah, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to let them consume me because now I can become a part of this greater good and I can become a part of this like great mission. Could we say that in the house is lawful neutral? Huh. <laughs> Um, if we're going to go with the nine-point alignment system, then sure, I'm okay. into it. All right, all right. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> but yeah, so many good characters. Captain Gimp, I think I mentioned. You know, the captain of the pirate crew. Chichok. Chichok. Right. The various. Uh, the various. Uh, again, the the unclean. These sort of they're sort of basically evil priests, for lack of a better word. But they they're actually uh, the most technological. They're the they have preserved pre-apocalypse technology to a certain extent. And as you say, we don't really know what's going on, like what, what kind of how they're motivated, like what are their sort of the inner structures. Of, we just we know that there's these circles, right? But we're just sort of coming at it from the outside. And that kind of is that same feel a lot of times if you're playing at the table, if you're the game master, you know that 90% of the time your players have not uncovered all there is to uncover, mm-hmm. you know, in, in your adventures. And your, when you're done with an adventure, just tossing it over your shoulder, you're like, oh, you know, there's still stuff in here they didn't get to. I can mine that for the next adventure and have a recurring you know, a recurring antagonist, a recurring villain, anything who's, you know, anything that survived, mm-hmm. you know, could still play a role. Yeah. Um, I also want to say that this, uh, sort of towards the climax when they're in, 
again, the sort of pre-apocalypse bunker, which is where the house is and where the other villains are trying to capture it. It reminds me of the very first basic D&D module into, uh, uh, into the Unknown, I think it's called B1, mm-hmm. anyway, because yeah. it had a you know, giant cave you could pop it full of funguses and pools and stuff like that and had that feel in there. Yeah. So. Yeah, very cool. Um, I'm it, with you on that. Yeah, and it's just also the, uh, I mean, the combat scenes are not as, um, you know, wildly violent as, like, Robert E. Howard scenes, but they're they're still very compelling, the fight, the battle scenes. You know, it's not just like, oh, they fought and then, you know, moved on to the next thing. You, you feel the threat yes. in every battle. Mm-hmm. I agree with that completely. And also, I mean, we definitely have an adventuring party here. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a strange group of people. Um, you know, we've got the the priest, the moose, the the woman, the bear, and then for a little while, they're also joined by Captain Gimp and his right. uh, pirate men. Mm-hmm. But at one point, when they first try to get on the ship, um, oh, and they're with Brother Aldo. Right. When they first try to get onto Captain Gimp's ship, Captain Gimp is talking to Brother Aldo, and he looks around and he says, "Talking bears, women who ain't proper slaves or wives." That funny-looking northerner? No offense, mister. And now this animal mountain? Nah, it's too much. I won't do it. My mind's made up. <laughs> but I just thought that was like a really fun kind of... It took a moment to just kind of step back and kind of laugh at this uh, motley crew of adventurers. Mm-hmm. Early D&D would let you sort of do that, and now it's sort of more formalized. Okay, you have to have a cleric, you have to have a fighter, you have to have a thief, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but early early role-playing, it's like, oh, well, well, you know, whatever concept that, you know, doesn't completely blow the adventure out of the water, yeah, sure, why not, you know? And I think there's a, maybe starting to be a return to that, at least in sort of the sort of OSR. It's like, okay, well, you want to play a talking moose? Tell me why, right? <laughs> and, and, I'll, you know, we'll see. You know, we'll see if we can meet somewhere in the middle, right? Sure. Right. And one of the things that I'm becoming quickly disavowed of is prior to coming into this project and starting to really read Appendix N, my impression had been that the adventuring party wasn't really something you encountered much in fiction, in this fiction. And I'm seeing again and again that that's not true. You know, oftentimes you have like kind of the one main protagonist who as he travels through the adventure, and yes, it's usually he, as he's traveling through the adventure, um, he kind of takes on these other uh, adventurers with him in his journey, and it ends up kind of becoming an adventuring party. Um, and I was kind of thinking about that as kind of a way to possibly like structure a campaign. Like it might be kind of fun to, you know, maybe start off with like maybe having just two players for your first session and maybe have like one player start off and then like, you know, like a 45 minutes into the session, the second player joins in. And then for your second session, you bring a third player in and for your third session, you bring a fourth player in and like slowly kind of have them build this party by going on their journey together. Right, sure, encountering them, and it's like, oh, and then have them interact, and then that sort of, then not automatically assume that, oh, yeah, we're just we're just this party, we all meet in a tavern. Yeah, you right? all meet in a tavern, exactly. Right, getting over that. And you're right, uh, certainly this has a party. The um, the first uh, World of Tears book eventually has an adventuring party. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not... You, three Hearts and Three Lions three had three the lions, party. Right. The Hobbit had the party. Right. Or, so people say, oh, it's really only the Fellowship of the Rings and, and um, you know... Uh, Lord of the Rings where you have yeah. an adventure party now, that, like, that was kind of my impression and yeah. that's, that's not true no I, we haven't gotten to A. Merritt yet but I, I'm under the impression too also with the A. Merritt books you'll also see eventually you know a, a group of protagonists so there's still oh, cool. a, a clear sort of main viewpoint character and, and that's just makes sense from a narrative point of view sure. especially back in the day and you didn't have like 800 page 
you know, doorstopper books to work with, you know. So, you know, you would maybe want to limit it to one one character's point of view and then have their sort of companions gather around them. Well, and even with those books where you've got, you know, your Wheel of Time series or your uh, Song of Ice and Fire series, although you do go from character to character, from chapter to chapter, those aren't people who are usually traveling together. They're right. usually people who are in very disparate parts of the the game world or the, I guess these aren't games, right. of the of The, the, the fictional world, world. right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Um, no, so yeah, you're right. This is definitely a, a party. You know, you could certainly set an adventure or a series of, if you were playing campaign where you find the sort of the hook for one of the characters and say, okay, we're going to, everyone's going to have their bit of business to do, but this particular sequence of adventures or this adventure is going to play off of this one character's hook, right? And then, you know, once we've resolved that, we'll find the hook for one of the other characters and sort of give them the spotlight as sort of the motivator for the adventure. Everyone will have something to do during the adventure, though. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, I think that's certainly a way to approach that if we want to sort of more emulate heroic fiction. Yeah. Right. And I think that's maybe one thing that maybe um, is sort of a weird little gap, both in classic D&D and current D&D. Is, there, is it heroic? Is D&D heroic? Uh, you know, people say, no, it's, you know, murder hobos or it's sword and sorcery. And it is modern D&D, conversely, too much, not even heroic, but more superheroic. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so finding, you know, and I don't say that there's a one way it has to be, but finding that balance that works for you as the game master and your players, right? I like that idea of not being all-conquering heroes, of being in a world that you can only sort of affect in sort of your immediate circles and then as you game gain more power and experience your your ripples of influence become larger yeah it feels more earned and and i think that's also more true to the fiction a lot of fiction is you know peasant peasant or some other unlikely hero you know again rising to the call to adventure Mm -hmm. and then you know gaining powers and companions and recognition as they go along which doesn't indeed end up changing the world Mm -hmm. because i'm personally drawn to the kind of gaming and the kind of um the kind of game worlds where that's possible. You know, one thing I really like about Dungeon Crawl Classics is that, um, first off, the, the, the character class level uh, only goes up to 10. And it even says in the, in the core book that, like, the number of 10th level characters that exist in the world are, like, maybe one per, like, eon or right. epoch or something. Right. Like, it's, 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 it's insanely rare to encounter even, like, a fourth or fifth level NPC just kind of out there in the world. Where when you right, contrast, so no Elminster is just hanging around. Thank you. Because I was just going to say, when you contrast that to Forgotten Realms, you know, there are so many 20th level multi-class characters who are roaming around that you have to be playing your... If, if you're going to play a campaign where you're starting from first level, you have to play your game for like 15, 20 years before you're even at the point where you can rub shoulders with these people. Right. right. Let alone like be the person who's like really kind of changing this world. Right. And I think that was a problem, I think, where people started to tune out on sort of... Um, What's the lack of a better word for it? Mainstream D and D at a certain mm-hmm. point is that they, re- and that was a problem in the '90s with uh, sort of the metafiction in the vampire, the masquerade world, you know, the world of darkness, and mm-hmm. then maybe a game with D and D. Like you felt like you were just only able to play in some little corner interstitial space of this world that was going on, you know, and that you had to be sort of true to the metafiction, and so that really sort of didn't leave you a lot to sort of a lot of room to sort of like you know grow. Yeah. Right. And I think that. Um, I like that idea of sort of 
unpainted edges around the map, and then you know you 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 fill it in as you go along, right? You know the stuff out there, mm-hmm. but you have to sort of fill it in. Whereas you know, again, I again, I wasn't really playing during the Forgotten Realms era, or at least as it was when it's at its peak. But it certainly feels like there wasn't, you know, this is all already done for you. So you could just have this little adventure here, and then eventually you could be, you know, Elminster's minion or somebody like that. Sure, you know, and I've never played any of the Star Wars games, and I'm sure they're a blast. But that's also why I'm personally um, attracted to games like Traveler. Over games, over Star Wars games, not mechanically because I've never played a Star Wars game, but just I'm attracted to the fact that like there is no, there are no kind of core assumptions around what this world is. Where if I go into a Star Wars world, I I'm a big geek, but honestly I'm not the hugest Star Wars geek. Like I've seen all the movies, but I don't know Star Wars as well as most of my fellow geeks. So if I'm going to be playing in or running. worse yet running a Star Wars game it's very likely I'm going to be playing with people who understand the setting far better than I do and that's intimidating to me it's intimidating and as you say especially if they're the kind of person who are going to call you on something that you don't know about yeah which you know that would be kind of a jerky thing to do but it's been it would be but like on the same hand like if I'm playing people who care about this kind of stuff right you don't want to ruin their their immersion exactly I would want to be presenting something that that they're not whether they're, whether they're being polite about it or not, that that doesn't totally uh, go against their understanding of the world. Like I understand, but I, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I know inside and out. Right. So if I was playing at a table where we were playing a Buffy the Vampire Slayer game, and somebody like has this in a scenario that just doesn't really make any sense within the fiction, I'm like you said, I'm not going to be a dick about it and be like, well, um, actually, that character would never do that, right. and uh, I don't know if you know, but right. I, so I, you wouldn't be a Warren then. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't be a Warren. Um, but <laughs> well, well done. Um, but like it, it would kind of make it a little less fun for me, even though, even though I'm not being a jerk about it. Right, right. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned Traveler because there is um, a dispute in the current. Oh, I won't say dispute. There is um, two camps, I guess, in the current uh, Traveler players universe where people are looking at Traveler and people who are very much into the. Just as there are people who are very much into OD and D, the original Brown books, there are people who are very much into the original three black books. In the traveler, with mm-hmm. the pre-imperium setting before, yeah. Um, so I can see, and then a lot of people say, "Oh, once they started, you know, going heavy with the imperium, you know, again, and we felt like I didn't have any room to breathe and really explore." Um, so, yeah, but that it's it's really simple to just say, "Okay, guys, the world we're playing in is just these first three books," which I love. Right. I, I think it's great that you can totally do that. Right. You right. know, just because all those books are out there doesn't mean you need to use them. I think that's a big um, a big obstacle that a lot of people who love second edition D&D face because there were so many splat books out there that if you're running a second edition game, you have to make it really clear we're just doing the core books or anything published anywhere is fine or everything that you want to do that's not in the core book, we need to look at and discuss on a case-by-case basis. Right. Uh, But as a group, you guys need to decide how you're going to approach that. Right. And I think that is, uh, again, we, we... Both are um, very much fans of DCC, and I think one of the, the one of the reasons for that is they stated from the very, you know it, the game has its assumptions, but they've stated from the very beginning that all you'll ever need for DCC is this book. Anything yes. outside of that book is welcome at your table and welcome, but it's not required or core or essential. So you're never yes. going to they'll publish adventures and there may be optional rules any of that, but they will not ever become canon, yeah. so to speak. So that you will always not having to struggle and say oh. You know, there was this rule somewhere buried in this, as you say, splat book, which is, you know, basically a series of supplements that we added more and more information to the game world. Thank you for defining that. Because, yes, uh, not a, it, I, I, w- I was making a, an assumption. Yeah. And, 
Yes, thank you. Right. So, yeah, so you'd, or, you know, not being in, um, again, I don't play Pathfinder, but I know for a period of time, you know, they just kept on adding, adding more and more, yeah. you know, companion books. And, and again, they, I think they made it pretty clear. Players that Handbook were, Volume 7. Right. I think they made it pretty clear that it was optional, but the kind of, the major appeal for a lot of people of a Pathfinder-type game is to be able to add the more options, more sure. options, more Optimal options. character builds. Right. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. I love GURPS, which is kind of in that same mindset, you know, to a certain extent, like really building, you know, taking the time to build your character. Um, but, you know, uh, at different points in your gaming career, you may have either more time or just have a different feeling that you're going for. Mm-hmm. And I think at the, at the moment, I think DCC really hits the sweet spot in terms of having enough structure to be able to play sort of a classical fantasy game uh, where you can actually get to sort of a heroic level and not constantly just be scrabbling around for, you know, a few square, spare coins here, spare sure. coins there. Um, as you say, you can have effect into the gaming world, but it's also still always perilous for you. You don't, you don't have to, you can't just look and say, oh, that's not a problem for me. You know? Sure, sure. Um, now, I do want to change the subject slightly because I am wondering at this point if there are people listening who are pulling their hair out saying, why haven't they mentioned Gamma World yet? <laughs> and possibly, why haven't they mentioned Mutant Crawl Classics yet? Uh, because also, very clearly, Hyro's Journey, um, while very influential on Dungeons & Dragons, is clearly far more influential on the creation of Gamma World and, by extension, the creation of Mutant Crawl Classics. Uh, those of you who aren't familiar with Mutant Crawl Classics, uh, you know, uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics is to D&D as Mutant Crawl Classics is to Gamma World. And Mutant Crawl Classics isn't out yet. Mutant Crawl Classics will be out, I believe, later this year. Um, but it is very shortly forthcoming. Um, but, yeah, Hoy, do you really have any experience with Gamma World? I did play Gamma World, but I haven't played it in ages. I played, I think, the first two editions. So I remember mm-hmm. the old black and white cover. Um, and I had no idea that this was a source at the time. I was not aware of this book yeah. at all. I mean, a lot, many of the other appendix and books I was aware of, you know, when I was gaming, I may or may not have read them, but I literally did not know anything at all about this book. Okay. So this is, you know, I've since seen the list, and but this is the first time I've read anything by Starling E. Lanier. But... Okay, so you've played uh, Gamma World back in the day. Mm-hmm. I've never played Gamma World, but I've played and run Mutant Crawl Classics. Yeah. And um, so we both have a little bit of experience with both of these things. And, yeah, it's very clear that, like, I mean, it almost seems to me that Gamma World and Mutant Crawl Classics are Hyro's Journey, the role-playing game, uh, with some exceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the exceptions being, clearly, Gamma World and Mutant Crawl Classics is much, much, much further in the future. Mm-hmm. Because the people who are populating Hyro's Journey still have enough of a sense of context for the objects around them and what's happening that when they pick up a laser pistol, they're not like, oh, what is this metal boomerang? Right. You know, like they, they, they know what it is, basically. Right. Or they have a, a rough idea as to right. what it is. Or conversely, it could have been a period before Hyra's journey, right, sort of maybe like between then and sort of the re-rise of civilization that Hyra represents. But yes. certainly not at the very snapshot moment of yes. Hyra's actual adventures. But the similarities would be, you know, it is a post-apocalyptic world. There's been some major devastation that has destroyed mankind. Because of that, humans are, have mutated and have discovered and, and have um, um, encountered all these, like, uh, have, have developed all of these strange new abilities. There are humans who have some new abilities, but then they're also just like straight up mutants. Right. There are plant people and there are uh, animal people. Yeah, those factions, which was very much important, important, important part of Gamma World. I think yeah. that was more so archaic than in, alignments, right? More so than in D and D as such. I mean, D and D had alignments, but didn't really they didn't start really discussing factions until sort of 
I think past first edition really, or, or maybe the first real evidence of factions was like in the um, uh, Vaults of the Drow series, you know, the, the actual adventures, not so much in the sort of player's handbook type such situation. Um, yeah, totally. You know, and the unclean or absolutely a, an archaic alignment. Mm-hmm. And in Mutant Crawl Classics, I believe they're called the, uh, the Vile Brotherhood. Yeah, that's what they're called. They're called the Vile Brotherhood. And um, it's definitely mutants who are hell-bent on world, conquering the world and mm-hmm. major devastation. Right. Um, yeah, and, you know, again, so I mean, I'm, I'm uh, you know, again, as you say, we, there may be some people out there yelling at us, and it's just really, for me, <laughs> a, a, a lack of recent table time with either MCC or Game World. But I do remember Game World very, very fondly. Uh, but, of course, in the 70s, there was so much post-apocalyptic stuff out there that, you know, this would... You know, this would have, you know, in retrospect, it's the major strain, but obviously you had Planet of the Apes, you had Charlton Heston vampire movie, when am I thinking of? The Mega Man? The Mega Man, you had all those films like that. You know, he had Logan's Run, uh, which is more straight science fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, But this, again, this points out an interesting thing uh, we've talked about before, is this um, not a hard line between heroic fantasy and science fiction, and that that seems to be uh, a more recent sort of uh, genre categorization. Uh, I, I know people will argue back to, like, the 30s and 40s with, you know, uh, Campbell, the Campbellian revolution, and, you know, or the men with screwdrivers, you know, trope. You know, this is hard science and everything else is fantasy. But I think that even then in the 70s and early 80s, people were like, okay, you know, the two flavors can mix. And I know that some people hate that and they want their fantasy over here and the science fiction over there. But this is a very good example of how it can work together. Mm-hmm. I and, agree with that. And you can bring those tropes in either way. And, and again, as you say, it's not just like a metal boomerang. We don't know what to do. Let's give the players a little credit. If it looks like a weapon, it probably is a weapon, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> so. Now, are there specific things that you encountered here that you feel like you could bring into your games? You Because know, I, I know I've got a couple of ideas. Yeah, there, there's a lot. I mean, there, I really... Um, I like the, again, we've talked about this before, we have talked about how players hate this, but it just works so well in, in, in fiction, is having the characters separated from their gear and, and, and be temporary prisoners and, and working out how to escape from that and, and, you know, regain their abilities and their powers. And I think that trying to find a way to incorporate that more into our games, and again, it's it's letting the players know that once they become prisoners, they will have a chance to escape or affect their destinies. It's not just going to be like, oh, that's it, you're done. You yeah. know? But I really think we're losing something by not having that on the table. Yeah. Right? So, 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 so discussing that with your players, say, listen, you know, there are situations, it's not, there's no problem, you don't have to fight to the death. You know, if you get taken prisoner, it's just another level of the adventure. Sure. Right? Um, so that would be my favorite thing to sort of bring forward that because Hyrule gets captured once for sure on the Isle of the Dead and he almost gets captured a couple more times yeah. and he's under, you know, mental pressure and influence a bunch sure. of times. And he loses his, um, you know, basically grenade rifle, mm-hmm. right, which is his more powerful weapon. So um, I think that having that kind of stuff go on, I think is, is a good thing to have there. But to, over to you. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've got a few. You know, one is that there's a great scene kind of near the beginning of the novel where um, he is, he encounters this giant herd of buffalo mm-hmm. or bison. And I remember in the original Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Monster Manual being like, why is herd animals a listing in the, in the Monster Manual? And I would bet money that it's based on that scene, that it's mm-hmm. based on that, that scene with Hyro and the herd of bison. Mm-hmm. And it's just a nice reminder that your encounters with living beings don't have to necessarily be 
uh, diplomatic and or combat encounters, they can be treated as environmental encounters. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, how do you deal with the, with the fact that, like, you have a herd of, like, a thousand bison coming your way? Right. You and know? in the environment in general, this book is so strong on, in invoking the terrain and the, and the places he's traveling through mm -hmm. and, and really making that part of your game, I think, yeah. is, is terrific. But, yes, you know, this herd of buffalo that's miles across and, yes. you know... Uh, you know, are they going to get trampled? Are they going to be able to filter through it? Or what are they going to do? Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think that's, you're absolutely right. That's definitely something. And then they travel on water. They travel through swamps. They mm -hmm. go underground. Yeah. Um, they're in, you know, this sort of trading slash pirate town. Um, so it's varying up the environment and really being just descriptive enough to get the senses and, and people knowing not just like, oh, this generic, oh, you're in a village. But on the other hand, not sort of, laying it on too thick, like worth, you know, heavy boxed text, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. And speaking of pirates, another thing I was thinking of is there's this scene where they are on Captain Gimp's ship and they encounter another pirate ship, Bald Roke. Mm -hmm. Bald Roke comes sailing up and then they have kind of this big battle back and forth. But then the battle stops because they basically come to a place where they're like, fine, instead of like all, all of us killing each other and sinking both of our ships, why don't we have somebody from your team fight somebody from our team and if we win, we get all your stuff. And if you win, you get all our stuff or something like that. Right. And I thought that was kind of a fun little scene in the, in the story. And it ended up leading us to kind of a very kind of freaky scene that we haven't spoken about where Hyro encounters this kind of like undead thing called the glyph. Mm -hmm. uh, but without going too far into that right now, um, it's kind of a fun reminder that you don't always have to deal with the battle on kind of this large scale level you can kind of come up with kind of a fun kind of mini game mm -hmm. to kind of deal with something like this especially if you want to work in um kind of major kind of personal codes because part of the reason why this works is in in the fiction of this world the pirates have these like very intense pirate codes where if you do lose to this you they absolutely won't even question the authority of, uh, of what's happened in this of the situation. Victor, right. And I th you're right. And having, uh, I mean, it's always been in heroic fantasy from, you know, the Iliad, but single combat between the champions of either side or yes. something like that uh, and, and adding narrative stakes. You know, D&D obviously uh, sometimes can just devolve to, I roll uh, eight hit points, you know, but, you know, back and forth, very mechanical uh, and not in an interesting way. And I think that it is the job of the game master and the players to, imagine it and describe it in an interesting way to, to, yeah. to uh, set the stakes. And this is something you can put in your Dungeon Master tool belt because I know that there are times where I have both as a judge and as a player encountered situations where I'm like, oh man, this is about to devolve into like mass combat between two different parties. How am I going to deal with this? Mm -hmm. And there are many answers to the question of how am I going to deal with that? And I would like to propose that this is another answer, mm -hmm. and this might be the simplest of the answers. So if in the fiction of what you're doing, the, the battle of the two champions representing each side makes sense, throw it in there, because yeah. it's going to make things a lot easier for you, and it's going to be kind of a fun change of pace for your adventurers. Right. You know, and then you, they can be vastly outnumbered by the horde of... Uh, honorable but vicious orcs, right? And then they'll, they'll <laughs> battle the orc champion. And then if they, you know, they, they get to walk away and it's not a, a TPK. Yes. Right? You know, they might walk away with, you know, worse for the wear and no treasure, but not a TPK. Yes. Um, so, yeah, no, I think that's, um, again, I think to bring some of these narrative um, tropes might be too strong a word, but techniques mm. back into our game, yeah. I think it is a good idea. And, and not not to 
automatically change the dice result to make it fit a preconceived notion of a, what your story is. That's not what I'm and that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying putting people in a situation where they can sort of best exemplify what their character is and, and what's logical for the antagonist or the environment. Yeah, I think is is um, something that maybe sometimes we forget to do as game masters. And of course, it's very hard, you know, especially when you have you know, six, seven people sort of demanding your attention as a game master, and sometimes you don't know them, so you don't, you know, especially if you're in an open table, so you don't really know how they're going to respond to what you're putting out there, mm-hmm. um, which is both the fun and the challenge of playing, you know, open table, I guess, yeah. you know, so. But I think that's also useful because, you know, if you play the same people over and over and over again, you know, you you may just sort of start hitting the same notes yeah. again and again. Sure. So, um, and, and this is what's great about this fiction here is it's bringing us back to this, uh, you know, things that we hadn't thought about for a while. Um, so, uh, what else there, Jeff? Anything else that jumps out at you? Sure. So in this world, there is no, there, uh, there are no gold coins, there are no credits, there are no dollar bills. Everything is done with the barter system. Mm-hmm. And in most of our campaign settings for Dungeons and Dragons, that is not the case. But I, it does, it is a good reminder to me that you can encounter situations where you might go to a place where your gold coins don't mean anything, mm-hmm. and where if you want to buy something, you're going to have to give them your dagger. Or you're gonna have to give them, you know, that strange potion that you have in your. In, so you have to give them something and like show them that it's of some value to them in order to pick something else out. Right, and that's another role playing opportunity, right? Yeah. Instead of just saying, "Oh, I've, I lay down 100 coins," and you know me, no magic shops, right? Sure. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, I think that's great. I think, yeah, as you say, you know, I would like, you know, I need to uh, by trading this dagger, this guy will tell me more. He'll offer to guide me through the swamp, or something. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, that's a really nice knife you have on your belt there. You know. Sure. <laughs> um, oh, you know, uh, even something even more mundane, but fun, like you know, they come and they, these are all people they've never seen, you know, leather boots before. Yeah. Right? <laughs> something Absolutely. really cool like that. Right. Yep. Yep. Totally. Um, Sure. Yeah. I think that's the last one that I have is that. um, Oh, actually, I'm sorry. Yeah. Actually, I have two more. (laughs) So. um, So the second to last one that I have is there's a scene where uh, Hiro ends up getting this big, nasty cut. Mm -hmm. And like it says that he's cut to the bone. Mm -hmm. And there's this whole scene where he's like stitching himself up and like tending to his wounds. And then for the next few days, he has some uh, he has a lot of difficulty getting around. And he's got this like kind of this solve, uh, this this salve that he can apply to his wound that makes it heal much faster. But for like a few days, you know, he is actually pretty affected by it. Mm. And I, I'm of two minds about this. On one hand, I think it's really the idea is really exciting about making wounds and injuries more interesting and more flavorful and having it kind of more impactful on the story. Um, I really I'm really attracted to that. But then the flip side of that, if it ends up just becoming like a lot of record keeping, then you have to remember that like, oh, this character has a minus four for the next three days on all of his rolls for physical activities because we rolled it on this wound chart. Right. That that's not fun or interesting. Right. I think D and D is not particularly well structured for that, as you say, and some yeah. other games like you know GURPS or any of the other ones, or some of the ones that just have a condition track. You mm-hmm. say you know. Fatigued, wounded, tired are yeah. obviously better structures. But I still like that. You're right. I like that, you know, adventuring should really wear you down. You should not always be at your best, mm-hmm. right? You know, in D&D, you're at your best until you have zero hit points yeah. a lot of times, right? So, yes, I think that's really good. Yeah. yeah, and even if it's just something you're doing for flavor, you know, if it's simply a matter of, like, you know, you're, the, the one character got down to zero hit points, yeah. 
and then they were healed and now they have like 10 or whatever. Yeah. But they were pretty badly injured when they got down to zero hit points. So you might just, in the fiction, say that this character has some broken ribs or something. Right. And maybe you don't even have that apply to any of their roles, but maybe the next time they miss a role, you can say, oh yeah, you try to do that, but because of your broken ribs, this thing happens. So you can just kind of tie that into the storytelling to kind of keep it all connected. It's it, it can be a lot to remember, but I think if you were able to successfully do that, it, it's a really success, successful callback that keeps people more engaged and present in the story. Sure, sure. In the last adventure I ran, actually, uh, one of the um, uh, characters was created by the, uh, the the boss monster and basically had all their teeth knocked out. So once they got back to town, they bought some wooden teeth and did the George Washington. So I thought that was pretty cool. So what <laughs> that was, was cool? What was your second point then? Yeah, and the last one, and we'll do over this quickly because we're almost out of time. But um, the very last one is, you know, Hiro has these really cool divination techniques. Mm -hmm. You know, he's got this, like, kind of box where he can, like, pull these, these, di these different symbols out. And uh, they, they give him a lot of information. And they're kind of like tarot cards in, in, in what they do. But it's not something he can kind of turn to constantly. And what the limitations are around that, it's not really specifically clear. But definitely in the story, Hiro never reaches in for more runes uh, when the previous ones hadn't at least been solved yet. But I think it would be interesting if you wanted to kind of introduce introduce some kind of kind of divination toolkit like this mm -hmm. that allows you as the judge or the dungeon master to kind of relay some information to foreshadow some upcoming fun plot devices, um, but to do so in a way that doesn't reveal too much, but like keeps the characters like looking out for meaningful upcoming plot points. Right, right. Uh, certainly there's a lot of games that are structured more towards that, like the various gumshoe games, for example. Yeah, it would be interesting to see some kind of overlay for sort of more traditional OSR, D&D-type games that, you know, doesn't slow down the story, but sort of gives it, as you say, that little bit extra flavor. And I guess, you know, if you're creative enough, you can improvise it. But, you know, it would be nice to have something somebody attempt to do that for us. Um, I want to say my point was, I thought very cool, was them sometimes improvising and designing weapons and equipment, like building the bows. Yeah, they, stuff built, like, they built a crossbow. Crossbow, so um, having that out there, I think, is something, you know, sometimes they get divested of their regular equipment, yes. as we say, and then have to sort of regain equipment, maybe make a, a flint spear or something yeah. like that. Um, you know, just to raise the stakes in peril and not just always have people be, like, just constantly accumulating more gear. Right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, okay, I think we're out of time, but uh, what's up next, Jeff? Well, episode 15 is going to be Lynn Carter's Giant of World's End, and episode 16 will be El Sprague de Camp's Less Darkness Fall. That's great. Both very, uh, very interesting books to talk about. Absolutely. Okay. And uh, please don't forget to uh, leave us a review on iTunes if you can, and that helps us out quite a bit. You can send us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com, or you can follow us or tweet at us on Twitter uh, by uh, checking out at appendix underscore n. Okay, and we also have a meetup group. It's uh, DC, uh, DCCNY? It's meetup.com slash DCCNYC. DCCNYC. And so that's both a meetup group for the DCC game and our reading group, so check it out. And our website, where the show notes will be and a lot of other information, is appendixandbookclub.com. So we'll see you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed! <laughs>